Well, I've honed it down to two different books for Sunday morning. I'm putting my last final thoughts and prayers into which ones we're going to dive into. But until then, I feel it necessary to have a little talk, a church conversation about a subject that I feel is very, very important. And it's also a subject that I believe can be greatly exploited within your life. Coming out of the tech industry, um, I've realized how vulnerable technology is. And lately we've been hearing it now more than ever about computers being hacked, institutions being hacked, and so forth. Various patches of software needed to protect, protect vulnerabilities within the systems and so forth so they cannot be exploited. But there's an area of our life that can be hacked. There's an area of our life that can be uh, exploited and that we need to be aware of. And we need to address it with the Word of God and the reality of who God is and the promises that He has made towards us concerning this subject. And the subject I'm talking about is the subject of fear. I'm very concerned that what we have seen over the last two years is a complete and utter exploitation of fear. We have seen fear manipulated. We have seen fear exploited. We have seen fear um, capitalized upon. And as Christians, I think we need to be very careful that we understand fear. We understand that fear can be rational. We understand that fear can be irrational. But we also must understand that fear can keep us from moving forward and fulfilling those things that God would have us to do. We can be resistant and we can justify that resistance by saying we're fearful or we are afraid. So as Christians, how do we deal with fear? And today we'll look at one of many passages over the next couple of weeks that really address this subject. But let me take you back to 2001. Before Joe Rogan was a famous podcaster that, of course, seems to be in the news every other week now, for one reason or another, he was the host of a show called Fear Factor. Does everybody remember that show? You know, it was one of those things that, you know, you didn't want to watch it because you squeamed in doing so, but you couldn't turn away all at the same time. The whole premise of the show was putting people in various positions where they would exhaust or they would stretch and push their fear to the limit before they could take no more. And they did some really, well, the technical term would be yucky things. They put people in big boxes and then poured garbage can loads of cockroaches on top of them and then sealed them. They dangled people from high, high heights, people who were terrified of being suspended or being that high in the air. They would bury people alive. They would trap people underwater. (laughs) We're a great society that likes a show like that, isn't it? What does that say about us, you know? But the fear factor, how far could they go before their fear would kick in and they would be then required to get out of that scenario? Fear is one of those factors that I want us to consider as Christians. God does not ask us to move by fear in the sense that the world would see fear, but he wants us to move by faith. But what does that mean? You know, I've seen many t-shirts over the last 
two years, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. It said fear, uh, faith over fear. But what does that mean? How does my faith conquer my fear? Another interesting book has recently come out. It was by a doctor named Dr. Mark McDonald. Um, and he is a clinical psychologist, a psychiatrist in California. He's also a medical legal expert, and he's in a fellowship at UCLA. And he then also worked with frontline doctors, as if you are aware of that name. They were a, a group of doctors that believed COVID could be approached in a different manner. And they were incredibly successful, but also incredibly suppressed. Dr. Mark McDonald wrote a book called The United States of Fear. I've just begun to dive into this book. It is incredible what he has discovered. He absolutely chronicles for us in a very methodical way on how fear was used to move and to manipulate people. He determined that from his collective observation, but also his clinical practice. It's a book that you might want to check out through Audible and others. Again, he begins by saying he had no intentions of ever doing this until he saw the results of how fear could be manipulated on a mass level throughout society. We're part of that society. You and I are subjected to the very same things that the rest of our society are subjected to. But we should look at it in a completely different manner. We should look at it through the Word of God. We should look at it through our understanding of who God is. And I think we should actually adopt something that Franklin Delano Roosevelt said when he said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important. Now, let me read that again. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Again, fear is a natural emotion. Fear can be helpful, but fear can also hinder. It can be rational or it can be irrational. Our Christian faith, our relationship with the Lord, begins with the understanding of the one true thing that we should fear in reverence and respect, and of course, that is the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 states, it should be on the screen behind me, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In the New Testament, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10.28, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This fear that God has naturally given us, just like our other natural bodily appetites, can be used for the glory of God or can be exploited by the ruler of this world. We as Christians must subject every aspect of our lives and surrender it onto the Lord, including our fear. Because again, we understand that fear can either be used to bring us to a place of glorifying God and fulfilling the purposes that He has for us by faith, or it can hinder us from what God would have us to do. So today I take you to one of the most classic passages to encourage us and to help us understand how we may contend with fear as a Christian, a follower of God. 
And that passage has been used by, in centuries, millennia, and it's found in the book of Isaiah. Will you turn there with me to Isaiah 41? In Isaiah 41, we come to a point in Isaiah where the children of Israel are absolutely in dismay and fear as God has now asked them to return to the land in which God had drove them from. But their fear overwhelmed them. Their fear caused them to uh, be reluctant in heeding what God had asked them to do. They were afraid that their enemies would destroy them, and more importantly, their fear was that God had abandoned them. But let us look in verse 8, reading through verse 10, and in verse 10 we'll give you the five pillars of fearlessness that have been used to encourage the people of God since the conception of the church. Verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, in whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. In those verses, we have five pillars given to us that we can stand on to help us confront our fear and to realize how we may proceed in faith rather than retreating in fear. As Isaiah is writing to these individuals, let us remember that throughout the history of Israel, there have been times in their history where they were asked by God to do something, and yet because of fear, they refused to do it. And it goes all the way back to Egypt. When the children of Israel were in Egypt, and God had sent Moses to deliver them, and as Moses approached Pharaoh each and every time, the consequences of those interactions uh, overspilled upon all the Jewish population that was there in Israel, and times became very, very, very difficult. To the point where the Israelis actually said, Moses, you've got to stop. We can't do this anymore. If Pharaoh's making it too hard on us, they feared Pharaoh more than they were willing to fear God and to obey him, even though he had finally sent the deliverer, to them. And even after they left, let us remember, making their way through the wilderness and finally coming to the edge of the promised land, 12 spies went in, 10 came out in a loud voice and said, no way, can't do it, impossible, there are giants in the land. And yet, two came out and said, no, it's perfectly, uh, it's ours, the giants, we can take them, it's cake. They brought this huge thing of grapes out and they wanted to encourage the people, but the people listened to the majority rather than the minority that agreed with God. The people became fearful and were unwilling to proceed and as a result, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. When the nation of Israel was um, confronted by the Philistines and Goliath, the soldiers retreated in fear at the size of Goliath. They took a shepherd boy in which God empowered 
to bring Goliath down. Of course, we know that young man to be David. There are times in our life where we will be asked by God to do something, continuing the momentum forward, being asked to fulfill the plans and purposes that God has for us, and something will oppose us and cause us to fear, and if we allow that fear to germinate, if we allow that fear to overwhelm us, we are going to stop in our tracks, and we are not going to fulfill what God has for us. The fear that we should have is that healthy fear that puts God in a place of preeminence within our life, which gives Him the ultimate authority, and which allows Him to lead us past circumstances that absolutely would dictate to us to run in fear. Going forward, I don't know what we are going to experience concerning the reaction of our nation, concerning our Christian faith. I don't know if we are going to start seeing a more aggressive form of persecution against the Christians who oppose things that the world is setting as the ultimate agendas going forward. But often I will tell you that when persecution comes in any form, it is when fear often arises the greatest and keeps people from being the witness that God would have them to be. Fear can lead us to a place where we disobey God. And so we need to be realistic about our fear. Again, a natural emotion. But have you ever noticed that if you read through the New Testament, in the new life in which Christ has given us, empowered by the Spirit, shaped by the Word, God often asks us to react to situations, trials, troubles, and tribulations, things that would overwhelm us, not in a natural way, but He asks us to respond in a supernatural way. And He can only do that because He's equipped us to do so. He's equipped us to respond in a supernatural way to those things that would confront us. From the very beginning, going back to the book of Exodus, chapter 14, God encouraged His people not to be fearful, but to overcome. In Exodus 14, 13 through 14, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Notice this, one of my favorite verses. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no uh, more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Sometimes when we become fearful, one of the greatest things we can do in response to that fear is to simply take a step back, stand still, and wait upon the Lord. Fear can act, fear can act as a catalyst to uh, lead us to a knee-jerk dis- uh, reaction. We can react impulsively through fear. And yet often in those fearful moments, instead of complicating the circumstance further, God would have us to simply stand still and wait on Him to see what He wants to do next. And as I grow as a Christian, I find that that is one of the most valuable pieces of advice that I could give anyone. As I've said in the past, let's pray and wait. 
When we're fearful, let's stand still and see what the Lord will do. Whatever those circumstances are, it is a blank canvas before us. So now we get to those five pillars of fearlessness. But before we get there, notice with me verses 8 and 9. Of course, we read these in uh, running up to our verse 10, which contains those five pillars. But there's a reality, there's a truth contained in 8 and 9 that we cannot just simply move past too quickly. Of course, the nation of Israel chosen by God, of course, starting with the person of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we too, before the foundations of the world, were predestined, called, and elected by God to be His. Now, that's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. How God will allow the doors to open to anyone who asks, and yet, as one walks through that door in acceptance of Christ, they read on the back of that door, predestined and elected from the foundations of the earth, before the foundations of the earth. We have been grafted into the vine that began with the nation of Israel, according to Paul in the book of Romans. So there are implications to this truth, and that is this, that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. There's another truth, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And those in whom he has called and justified, he will also glorify, Romans 8.30. It tells me that there's a bigger plan in play. And the moment of fear that I'm experiencing, no matter what it is, is always under the umbrella of that reality. That God has chosen me before the foundations of the earth. There's a bigger plan in play, and there's a bigger idea at at work, and I just need to submit that moment of fear into that grand scheme of things. And then I can look at that moment of fear more objectively and less subjectively through emotion. Hey, whatever I'm experiencing, God knew before I did that it was going to occur. God knew that I was going to run into this situation. And this situation that I'm facing is by no means going to hinder the work that God has started in me. Do you see where I'm going with this? That God's plan for me is bigger than any one circumstance that we face. And that work that He has started, He will be faithful to complete, no matter what happens. Now, the nation of Israel could have walked in to the promised land, right, at that moment, but they chose not to. I think what we do in that moment matters and how we proceed going forward. We can wait on the Lord and have the Lord lead us through that trial, or we can complicate the circumstance and make it more difficult and maybe bring about consequences that we could have avoided otherwise. But either way, God is working in us, and we know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So even this trial, even this moment of fear, is a moment where I can see and watch God do something great if I only will allow Him to do it, whatever that may be. Again, the premise of our entire Christianity begins with the idea that Jesus laid out in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. Paul said it this way, let us lay ourselves before the Lord as a living sacrifice, which is only our reasonable 
service, meaning it's only reasonable in the light of all that Christ has done for us to lay ourselves as a living sacrifice before him. If that is truly our understanding, then whatever I face at that moment, I know that God is going to use for a greater purpose. But I may not see it from my perspective. Often when we read the Bible, we see people go through very fearful times. And yet, from our, from our perspective, in hindsight, looking back on it, we see that God was in control of it the entire time. But I'm not sure they did at that moment. Because our sight is limited. We see the day that we are in. We see the frame of the film of the movie of our life one frame at a time as we go day by day by day through our Christian walk. But yet God, on the other hand, sees everything, right? He sees where we started. He knew us before we, we, we came to Him. He knew us from the founda- before the foundations of the world. And He also knows that the work that He has started in us will conclude with Him glorifying us and returning us to that state in which He always desired us to be. But now we get to the five pillars. Verse 10. Here it says, fear not. It is a command and it's an imperative. He's, it's choosing not to fear. And then he gives us five reasons why we can choose not to fear at those moments that we would be uh, overwhelmed by fear in our personal life. God plus one is always the majority. Notice what he says here. He says, fear not for I am with you. Number one, God is with us. This is the first reason why we should not be fearful. God plus one is always the majority. Paul said it this way, if God is for us, then who can be against us? It was given to them to ease their mind concerning the idea that God had abandoned them because of their sin. And it also went on to say, do not be dismayed. Meaning, when we are dismayed, We are again placing ourselves in a position of vulnerability. It means that there is some burdensome thing, a situation that is causing trepidation within our life. Dismayed can also mean that when we get uh, into a situation, we forget the greatness of God. In Deuteronomy 31.8, The Lord said, and the Lord, He is the one who goes before you, Moses says. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not be feared, do not fear, excuse me, nor be dismayed. When Joshua was undertaking the awesome task before him, his fear was great at that moment of commission. But God said to him, have I not commanded you? Now be strong and of good courage and do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And of course that translates to us today. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. As Paul said in Romans 8.31, it should be on the screen behind you. What then shall we say to these things? That if God is for us, who can be against us? God is with you. God is always with you and He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. And when you are in those moments that fear is overwhelming you, gripping your heart and your mind, is often when He is with you 
the greatest if we will turn to Him and trust Him to take us through these moments. But in that position of being dismayed, notice with me again in verse 10, where we forget the greatness of God and we begin to look at things through the lens of our own understanding, when we begin to sum things up based upon our limitation and not the greatness of God, next we have to understand that He is our God. And that denotes relationship. That it's not only that God is with me, but that He has a relationship with me, and that relationship is love. And that love is leading Him to uh, change us and to make us better and to sanctify us, more theologically specific, sanctify us, taking us out of the image of this fallen world and creating within us the image of Christ, conforming us to that image. But knowing that He is our God, that same love, that same commitment to His promises, to His Word, is with us today as it was the nation of Israel then. And we can be, a, we can be confident that because if, they chose, if He chose them and He has chosen us, then the promises that He has made to us, He will fulfill because He's capable of fulfilling them. I like the way Paul said it in this progression. Again, a passage of Scripture that you're, I'm sure, very familiar with. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn among many believers. Many brethren, excuse me. Moreover, verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you notice that the word he is used quite often in verse 30? It's God working in us. It's God doing that work in us and to bring us to where we need to be. We just need to submit ourselves, surrender ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him, knowing that we are doing so before a God who loves us, who has adopted us, redeemed us, and adopted us, and that the work He has started in us, He is faithful to complete. I say this all the time, but I don't think I can say it enough. God loves you so much that He loves you to the point where He can't leave you the same as when He found you. God is always working in us. And in those times of fear, let us know that the God in whom we serve, the God whom is with us, is a God who loves us. The second pillar of fearlessness. But He doesn't stop there. He gives us a third. Notice that Isaiah writes that God said to His people, I will strengthen you. God will give us a boldness, the courage to go through the fear for the purpose of victory. Again, Joshua was told in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. To the New Testament church, he said this concerning Peter and John. When they were being evaluated by the religious leaders and the boldness was saw with, seen within them. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. 
Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men. They marveled and they had realized that they had been with Jesus. Or in Acts 4, 29 through 31. Now the Lord looked on their threats. I'm sorry. Now Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. When they were threatened... When the religious leaders were coming against them and opposing the early church greatly, their first resort was to pray. They didn't petition. They didn't protest. They prayed. They took it to the Lord, saying, Lord, under these threats, they could put us to death. They could arrest us. They can seize our material possessions. But Lord, we choose to observe your command over our own personal fear. Their faith allowed them to move forward. And they asked specifically for the boldness that they needed to speak the word that God had required them to speak. We have seen over the last two years that a majority can have a weight of dominance in any, other, in any culture, can't it? Especially when dissenting ideas are suppressed censored, if you will. We've seen that firsthand now in our culture. We don't have to make an argument for that or, you, or look at it as an abstract. It is absolutely truthful. However, though, now we also realize that the majority isn't always right, are they? And there needs to be robust conversation and dialogue when pressing crises and issues occur. Speaking with one voice may unify to a certain level and to a degree, but if that unification is under a false premise, then the majority is not being uh, helped, but they're yet they're being deceived. We as Christians are f- fast becoming the minority, and we are going to need this boldness to say what we need to say with confidence and courage going forward. Because Christians are obligated to tell people what they need to hear rather than what people want to hear. Our culture is trying to shape us into affirming everyone's personal desires and wishes and identities, right? But God doesn't tell me to simply affirm a false identity. God is asking me to tell the truth in all situations, in all occurrences. I'm not helping someone by uh, affirming a falsehood. In fact, I'm only contributing to their downfall. So going forward, we are going to need this boldness, this courage, and that is only found through prayer. So not only is God with us, not only is He our God, not only will He strengthen us, But notice the next one. He says, I will help you. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself is a great way to understand what he is saying there. 
I can work supernaturally in any given situation above and beyond your own personal abilities. When the children of Israel were kept captive in Egypt, the Lord brought about ten plagues upon Pharaoh and upon the nation of Egypt, showing that he was superior to the various different pagan deities that they worshipped there in Egypt, and set the groundwork for their deliverance. After they were led out, they came to the Red Sea, which of course seemed to be a dead end, and it was. The Red Sea before them, cliffs on either side of them, and the Egyptian army bearing down behind them. And yet, when Moses told the children of Israel, let's be still and see what God will do, I don't think for a moment that he was considering going up on the rock and raising his staff and the Lord parting the Red Sea, with the, with the breath of his nostril. I don't know about you, but that would have been pretty cool to see. Have you ever gone to Lake Michigan and just wondered, you know, Lord, just part it here. I can go right to Michigan. Yeah, I can go right here. You just would love to see that. When Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land, their first, occur- their first encounter was that of the city of Jericho. And they knew that God was going to give them victory. And then God spoke to Joshua and said, no, okay, and I just want you to march around it. Excuse me, Lord, you said what? No, just march around it. And then on the last time, blow your horns. Wait a minute, Lord. Okay, these walls are great. They're huge. Just march around it. But Lord, I don't think you understand. Those walls are huge. Just march around it and then blow your horn. Yeah, okay, Lord... We must be lost in translation here. And of course, you know what happened. They marched around, blew their trumpet, and the walls came crumbling down. That's what help means. When God intercedes in a supernatural way to overcome the obstacle in which we face. And God does it each and every day in unique ways. As we face the various things. As one wrote concerning the definition of this word help, it's a verb meaning to help, to aid. It means to support, to give material or non-material encouragement to a person through the event. God was the one who helped his people throughout all of the word of uh, God. Later, Jesus said this, notice this. In John fourteen sixteen through 17, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another, what? Helper. Think about that for a moment. The Spirit of God is given to us to be our helper in our times of need. That we may abide with you, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So it's interesting to me that God is saying that we don't need to be fearful. We can choose not to be fearful. It's, I believe, a choice at those moments. And that's indicative of what he says, fear not, at the beginning of verse 10. But then he goes on to the fourth. And he says, I'm sorry, the fifth. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What does that mean? Uphold you. It means that when you can't take one step further, 
It means when you're down and out, down for the count. I saw a beautiful video the other day of two marathon runners, and one marathon runner had collapsed just in sight of the finish line. And as the next one, who still had steam, was coming up before him, initially passed the man, but then turned back, picked up the man, and carried him across the finish line with him. That's what God is saying that He'll do for us. That He will hold our hand and take us forward at those moments when we are weakened to the point where we are just frozen due to our fear. The Lord will come alongside of us. The Lord will take us by the hand and He will carry you forward. (laughs) Growing up as a parent, uh, you learn a lot about God through being a parent. Uh, I can't wait to one day experience being a grandparent where I can just spoil them and then send them home. But Autumn and I would often go for walks. We, We would go for walks around the block We would go to walks uh, to the park. We would go to walks in the mall when the weather was uh, nasty. But something always happened on the walk. She was always excited to start the walk. Let's go on a walk, Dad. Where do you want to go? And she goes, well, let's walk over by the lake now. Okay, now that was code because on the other side of the lake was the playground. Okay, so she was already working me back then. But I noticed something about these walks. She was all enthusiastic to go from the house to the various location in which we were going to end up. But then when we got to the farthest point, all she said, I'm too tired. I can't go another step. And of course, I did what any parent would do. I just left her there. No. I picked her up and carried her home. It got a little tough when she turned 16, but... uh, but I would pick her up and carry her home. Yesterday, Dean and I, did you guys get out yesterday for a little while? I hope everybody did. It was gorgeous. Dean and I went for a nice walk in the, in the woods. And we were walking. We come up upon this mom and this little boy. And the little boy is literally just laying in the middle of the path like this. He was done. And she would pick him up and he would go right back down. And she would turn him over and he'd go rag back down. Then she would walk ahead and he was just lying there. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Because he, of course, wanted her to pick him up and to take him the, the final way. God's just like that with us. He picks us up. And he takes us over the finish line. And he does so because we're his kids. Those in Christ Jesus are true children of God. The only children of God that God has are those in Christ Jesus. We are heirs, the Bible tells us. We are sons and daughters of the King. And because we are heirs with Jesus, and notice that he even indicates that the hand in which will uphold us is his right hand. It's a, position, it's a statement of authority and position. As Jesus stood up watching the stoning of Stephen, it was, he was at the right hand of God, that place of authority. When the disciples thought that Jesus were going to set up the kingdom in his first coming, 
they argue to who will sit at your right hand, this place of authority. It's the right hand of God because we are children of God, heirs to all that God has for us. And notice the way Paul puts it. Paul, one of the most um, educated of all the apostles. But notice that even after being a Pharisee in his newfound Christianity, notice what he says concerning God the Father. And of course, this would have been considered disrespectful prior to the Messiah. You may not know this, but when Jesus instructed us to pray, our Father in heaven, the religious leaders at that time found that incredibly disrespectful. They wouldn't uh, say that. They would never, ever say something like that because of the implications of its understanding. But Paul, a Pharisee, then, of course, becoming the great apostle, in Romans 8, 14 through 17, notice with me, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, notice that, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, notice what he says next, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. This is an incredible promise. I don't think we fully understand the ramifications of that statement. How many of you, though we joke about it, if your son, daughter, or grandson, or granddaughter was in the mall with you, and they just pooped out at parties, and they just laid there on the ground, how many of you would go, <laughs> go about your business? Maybe I shouldn't ask this. I don't want to know. Would go about your business, go have lunch, shop, and then, well, listen, they've laid down by the door. We'll just get them on the way out, you know. None of you would do that. You would make sure that they were with you. So you could watch over them and protect them and take them to where they need to go. And that's what God does for us. He upholds us. So number one, I am with you. Do not fear, for I am with you, he says. Number two, I am your God. Do not look anxiously about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you, he says, and surely I will uphold you with my right hand. Today, when it comes to fear, we can wander in a wilderness just like the children of Israel did because of their unbelief. That wilderness that we wander with, wander within, is a wilderness of what I like to call what-ifs. Do you ever notice that the what-ifs of life can often generate the greatest amount of fear within your life? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this occurs? And fear begins to be generated in your heart and worry and anxiety follow. But with God, there are no what-ifs. He knows exactly what's going to happen next. And if He leads us into something, He will give us the strength to go through it. He will give us the encouragement. He will give us the confidence. He will give us the courage to take us through it. But we just need to remember that even though we may be overwhelmed by the darkness of fear, let us not 
retreat into emotionalism that abandons those things we know to be true to adopt things that we don't know to be true. It's at those moments of darkness that we must remember that God is with us, that He is our God, that He will strengthen us, help us, and uphold us with His right hand.